0: Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is so good to see you. We are uh, we are rolling uh, away in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's been uh, just uh, amazing thus far and going to keep going this morning. And the deeper we get into this text, the more that I get concerned and maybe it's just me, uh, but the more I get concerned that we can kinda get really, really, really focused in on one part and kind of lose the whole. So uh, an exercise that I just did this week uh, that I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this in the sermon and, and uh, something I may I would encourage you to do oftentimes as well is just to kinda uh, reimagine the whole thing and, and spell it out in your own words. And so what I've done is just stepped back from the Sermon on the Mount and I've, I've thought about what we've said thus far, the context of what we've said thus far, the things that Jesus is gonna say later on, the things that are coming in the Gospel of Matthew and I've, I've tried to envision myself in that place as as a listener, as somebody that was on the hillside with Jesus as he he taught. And so I'm just going to read you what I wrote. And my my hope is that this just kind of can fill your imagination as well so that we remember what is going on in the larger context as we read these words. Remember that Jesus is calling those uh, who have come into the kingdom through personal relationship with him to a greater righteousness And it's a righteousness that is displayed in action, but it's action that comes as a result of a heart change. So there's a shift in the heart, the heart of stone has been made a heart of flesh and we've been filled with God's spirit and the actions that come out are the result of that new life in Christ. So imagine yourself as one of the crowd. Jesus has come to you, maybe you're one of the people that he came to in Matthew chapter four. Maybe you were one of the ones that, uh, that, that Jesus came to and in some amazing way, Jesus has touched your life with his grace. Maybe he's healed your body. Maybe he has uh, brought light into a dark and hidden place in your heart and life and you've listened to him and you've seen him do this for you and you've watched him do this to others. You've seen him uh, do this to, to, to friends and then he tells you, that the long awaited promise of the reign of God the kingdom of God that thing that the prophets spoke of is here it's here in him and if you will repent of your sin and come in to him have relationship with him then even though you are of no real status in the world that you can come in and be part of God's kingdom he calls you to follow him and Cautiously, timidly, but excitedly, you agree to do so. And you're eager. You're ready to make his teaching your way of life. You realize that he has something to share with you and you want to learn from him. And so as you sit at his feet, he tells you, since the time you were a child, you've heard the law. You've heard it read in synagogue, you've heard it taught, and you are well aware of the things that it says. But those commands, all that you've heard that it said, they were there because of the brokenness of the human heart. And as he says those words, you think about all that you were before you met him. And you know that he's right, that the human heart is broken. But then he says, Because God's kingdom has arrived and your heart has been replaced by a heart of flesh, because I've put my spirit within you, you can walk in my commandments. I'm telling you that it's time to live in the way that you were always intended to live. It's time to live according to the kind of righteousness the law was pointing to all along and the kind that I'm showing you in myself. But don't worry. Even though I'm saying that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And even though I'm telling you that you have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you will not do this alone. You will do this by trusting me for everything. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And you've got to learn to trust my indwelling presence for every part of your life. My spirit will teach you. I will guide you into truthful thinking. He will give you the courage and the strength that you need, and he will only seek to glorify me. I want you to know that living this way is gonna be hard. The difficult things in your life may not go away, and People around you may absolutely hate and resent you for living in this new way. But let me tell you that you will be full of joy. You will have my joy as a possession. Now, I wanna tell you what this greater righteousness is gonna look like. And I imagine that that's, the whole, just the filling of our imaginations with what Jesus is doing as he takes them through step by step and says, you've heard that it was said this, but I'm telling you this. This is the whole context of what Jesus is trying to do. He's not making life harder. He's not giving us more rules. He is filling in the gaps of what the law was pointing to all along and talking to us about real kingdom righteousness, the thing that you and I were made for, the thing that sin prevents us from, and the thing that we can can only walk in through relationship with him through new birth new life filling of the spirit when Jesus says come in I want to show you the way that you are meant to live all along and that's where we are and I again I want to just I want to encourage you to not we're going to read a section it was just read about the taking of oaths and I want to encourage you just not to go okay I can sit this one out Oath taking is not a real huge part of my day, you know. Like unless you're in the courtroom or something, and and uh, you're like, "Good, you know the the like the marriage and the lust and the anger." Like that was really hard. But oath taking, oath taking, I can have a Sunday off. <laughs> no, it's not what's happening here. It's not rules about taking oaths. Jesus is going to speak to something even deeper. So he begins in the way that he always begins. In verse 33, he, said, he, said, he says that you've heard that it was said. Now, here he's not quoting from one specific place. What Jesus is doing, he's a pretty brilliant guy and he knows his Bible well. And so Jesus goes back into the Old Testament and he takes several different passages that relate to the swearing of oaths and he, he brings them together and he makes a summary statement about what the law required as it related to the taking of oaths. And he said, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. That's the summation. Now, when we hear the word swearing, I think in our, uh, in our culture, we think about saying bad words. Swearing and O's, it's not what we're talking about here. It's not what Jesus is, is talking about here. What he basically says is the law said that if you swear by my name, and we're gonna get into what that means in a second, that you should do what you say if you take an oath that it relates to the name of God, then you should do what you say. I want to give you an example from Numbers chapter 30. You can read this uh, throughout the week if you want. Numbers chapter 30 is an entire chapter about taking oaths. Here's what verse 2 says. It says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The key thing to pick up uh, here and the thing to know about the law in the Old Testament as it related to the taking of oaths was that it was talking about truth-telling as it related to the name of God. God. So the name of God is sacred and holy. This is the great I am. And the idea here is that you should, you will not be deceitful or swear falsely as you take into your mouth, a part of that oath, the name of the Lord your God. We know this when we talk about Exodus chapter 20 verse 7. It says we shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. But look at Leviticus 19, chapter, uh, verse 12. I'll just read it to you. It says, you shall not swear by my name falsely. Okay, so we got that, right? We shall not swear by my name falsely, but look at the consequences. He says, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So the idea is that God's covenant people, they carry in themselves the reputation of their God. And that when they bring his name into association with their actions, their, their word should be truthful. And if it is not truthful, if it's full of deceit, then it does not just talk about their reputation. Then what happens there is the reputation and the name of the Lord their God has been drugged through the mud. But in the Jewish and in the Gentile culture uh, at the time, what would often happen is that the name of Deity in this case for for the Jewish culture the name of God a Gentile culture it would have been whatever deity that name would be invoked in order to bolster an argument we know about this. We know about this. When we say things like, I swear to everything that is holy or whatever else we say, the idea there is that I need to bolster an argument. I need to really make you understand that I'm telling the truth, so I invoke the name of deity in order to bolster that argument. We, we do this all the time. We actually do this in our legal system, don't we? We make people put their hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help me, right? And the idea there is that everything that I say, as if it wasn't that way before, now the switch flips, and now I'm gonna tell the truth, and all of the truth. It's really not so much to ensure that the truth is told, as much as if we find out that you didn't tell the truth, we have legal ramifications to come after you, right? Right? Because we know that people don't always tell the truth. But again, the idea is that if someone brought God's name into the equation and wasn't truthful. They were profaning God's name and his reputation. And Jesus says, well, that's all fine and good. That's what the law said. And then Jesus does this like he always does, but I say to you, and he's gonna go after something so much deeper than the rules and regulations for the swearing of oaths. Because, if you have been around for the last few weeks, that you you know that because what had these people done? They had developed workarounds, right? They developed uh, little, little uh, loopholes to make sure that they could continue doing what they wanted to do while also not uh, being in violation of the law. Nobody wants to take the Lord's name in vain, and so they got to come up with cute ways to dress up their oaths so that they don't actually have to be truthful, but they can sound like they are. Jesus says in verse 34, and we can see how this works, he says, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all, watch this, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for this is the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And what they were doing, the workaround, is that they wouldn't actually use God's name. See, if I were to actually say, I swear by Yahweh, then I am taking his name. But if I swear by the temple, then I'm not actually taking God's name, so I'm not in violation of the command, but I'm also saying I swear by the temple so that you know it's essentially equitable to swearing by the name of Yahweh. I'm invoking something holy in order to bolster an argument, but also if it happens that my statement is not entirely true, I won't be held account for taking God's name in vain, right? So I get it both ways. I can lie and be deceitful while using something holy while not actually violating the command. See, aren't human beings great? Don't we do that? We figure out all the little loopholes. Look at this conversation in Matthew chapter 23. This gives you a little bit more of an idea of what was going on. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus, this is the seven woes of the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus is just going after the religious elite for all of their hypocrisy. And here's what he says. He He brings this to light again in verse 16. He says, "'Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing.'" But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oaths. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred?' So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Now watch this. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God. And watch what he does here. And by him who sits on it. What's Jesus calling them on? He's saying all of these workarounds that you're using in order to avoid using God's name, you're actually using his name because his name, he is the one that makes it all holy in the first place. All of creation ends up finding its way, its origin point, back to the one true God, that which is holy. And so to swear by anything in order to invoke his name in presence while not naming him is actually naming him anyway. And you are a hypocrite and guilty of taking his name in vain. Jesus, though, isn't making new rules on oath-taking. If you're like taking notes and you're like, okay, so gold, check, gift on the altar, check, I can swear by those things, that's not exactly what Jesus is trying to do. It's an odd point to us. Culturally, it's an odd point. We're like, Jesus, we get it. You talked about marriage, we get it. You, you, you talked about lust, we get it. We, you, you talked about anger, we get it. Why are we talking about oaths? This seems to be an odd thing in the context of the sermon on the mount, but the point is, and, and here's the point, I'm gonna give you the point, and the sermon's not over, so hang in there. The point is that the greater righteousness of the kingdom recognizes that all of creation is the Lord. That's what Psalm 24 one says, and so, Kingdom righteousness people are people who live open and truthfully in all that we say and do and have no need for invoking the name of what is holy because our lives are holy and truthful in and of themselves. Our word is enough because all of creation is His. But again, you may be thinking, why? But why? Why? Does that need to be in this Sermon on the Mount? These just select few things that Jesus is gonna talk about. Why is that in there? Well, I've told you before, and I'm holding to it today, that Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is brilliant, and he knows that hiding and manipulation and control are deeply woven into the fabric of our fallen human nature. Jesus is pointing out the reality of our desire to control and manipulate two things. The first thing that we control and manipulate is what? Our own image. I want to control and manipulate what you see of me. It matters to me what you think. And so the first thing that I'm constantly trying to control is my own image, So much so that I even blur the lines. I'm not really sure who I am because I'm so bent on controlling who you see me as that I even get lost in who I really am. We control tons of how people perceive our own image. The second thing that we like to control, what, what do you think it's gonna be? We control ourselves. Who else do we like to control? Others. We like to control others, and we particularly like to control others as it relates to the decisions that they make in regards to you and me. So if I say, for example, I swear to everything that is holy I didn't do that, what am I trying to do? I am trying to coerce your decision-making, I'm trying to control you. I'm trying to manipulate you by invoking the name of God. My word is obviously not enough. I have to add the name of something holy in a conversation with you to try to manipulate you to try to get you to not really uh, function in reason and in logic, to get you to see something different about me than what really may be there. The point is that I am trying to manipulate you to go a certain direction that I want or need you to go. Now, I know that that's probably true at other churches, but nobody here does that, so we can just move on. No, okay, we need to keep going, that was an awkward silence, all right, well, just keep going. But don't you see, we're gonna go through some examples, but how much time do we spend controlling and manipulating our own image and controlling and manipulating others the way they see us and the decisions that they make as relates to us, we use smoke screens and where does Jesus say we primarily do that? Through our words. And we do that to control how we're perceived, to manipulate them. And then look at verse 37. Look at what Jesus says. This is a tiny couple of words here, but Jesus tells us where it comes from. This should matter. He says, Let what, what you say be simply yes or no. Watch this. Anything more than this comes from evil. Anything more. Than your word and living truthfully and honestly in front of others, anything more than that, has a source. And Jesus is pointing to that source, which is evil. Now, as is so many things, in order to understand what he's talking about, we've got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. I want to invite you to do that with me this morning. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis Chapter three, Jesus says that this distortion, these smoke screens, this manipulation that we do, it comes from evil. And I want to take you through what that looks like. But the first thing we've got to understand, and I know I say this all the time, so just you can roll your eyes, but we've gotta we've gotta grab this. That we, we, we need to understand that sin is the idolatry of self. Paul explains it that, that we worship creation instead of the creator. All of what happens in Genesis three, the thing we call the fall, is when humanity substitutes the worship of creation for the worship of God. That's sin in and of itself. And, and what happens is that everything collapses in on itself from that point because God is meant to be worshiped and God worshiped alone. And when you substitute creation for the name of God, when you substitute creation for what is just, or substitute an image bearer for what is the real thing, then true worship breaks and everything else collapses in on itself. And that's what happens in Genesis chapter three. Now, as a result of that, of that sin, of that idolatry, human beings placing themselves at the center of creation, our focus becomes one thing. What is it? Us. Our focus is totally on us. It is self-preservation at all costs. That's a description of what life in sin nature looks like. It is totally focused on self. And so what we're going to do is we're going to manipulate whatever we can, all of creation. Primarily, we're going to manipulate one another for our own power, for our own pleasure, and for our own safety. You can break every sin expression down into that very simple explanation of self-preservation. Self-preservation. Worship. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. The, the enemy tells them that if they will take of the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will be like God. And they believe that they can be like God and they swap that worship out. And then here's what happens it's so important to see the, the first ramifications of sin. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, look at this word, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now if you're reading carefully, one of the things that you'll notice is that they didn't sin and become naked. They were naked before. It says that in verse 7, the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So watch what happens. That when they start to worship self, when they focus inwardly on themselves, what what do they begin to do? They begin to look inward and evaluate themselves. The outward focus that was there, which was focused primarily where? Where was Adam focused? On God and on Eve and all of creation. His eyes were fixed outward. He was naked the whole time, but his eyes were fixed outward. Then in sin, when he begins to worship himself and he becomes the center of the universe, he begins to look inward and evaluate himself. Now, nothing about him actually changed. Again, he was naked before, he's naked after. But when he begins to evaluate himself, what is the immediate response to what he is? Shame. Do you see it? Come on, smile or agree or nod or something. He looks at himself and he's ashamed of what he is, though nothing has changed. Except for the fact that he is now the center of the universe. And when he's the center of the universe, he begins to evaluate himself And he sees what he believes he should be ashamed of. Do you see the distortion there? What he was in front of God was nothing to be ashamed of. But when he worships creation instead of the creator, he begins to distort his own image of himself. And then what does he do? What do they do? They grab a fig leaf and what do they start to do as it relates to one another. They hide from one another, why? Because what they are is shameful. Do you see how this is going? Yeah. The first thing is they turn inward on themselves. The second thing is they're ashamed of what they are. And the third thing is because they're ashamed of what they are, they begin to hide from one another. And then do you see it, what else happens? What's next? They hide from God. They hide from God. Their false presentation to one another really just points to the greater lie that they believed that they're no longer presentable before God. And so what are they doing? What is hiding in this situation? They're hiding from one another. They're twisting and distorting and manipulating what the other person sees. They're hiding and twisting and distorting and manipulating what God sees. That's why Jesus says this thing that you do where you use smoke screens and you hide and distort what you are, you know where it comes from? It comes from evil. It comes all the way back to this Genesis three moment where you substituted yourself, put yourself in the place of deity and moved God away from that and do you see? Do you see the domino effect of that shift, how now you can't even be who you are in front of one another? You can't be who you are in front of God because you think that it's a reason to be ashamed and so you hide and twist and distort and manipulate according to the image of yourself that you believe. Why? Because you think you're God and you have the idea of what you should be anyway. So you better convince others of it as well. You with me? Again, nobody here does that. So here's what we do, listen to me. We spend our lives on the treadmill of posturing and hiding from one another. This is everywhere. You know, the the story of the, I don't don't know how it goes, but it's a a little wives tale that talks about the fish in dirty water, that the fish doesn't realize the water's dirty, right? It's just because it's their environment. There's some story that goes to that. I probably should have done a little research pre-sermon, but I didn't, so just, okay, bear with me. But the idea is that if the whole environment is muddy and murky, do you notice? No, that's what you live in. Spin and distortion and twisting and smoke screen, it's everywhere. We live in a culture that worships that. So it's really hard to see it. But the people from Switchfoot did, and they wrote a song. And I happen to like Switchfoot, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of these, of these lyrics. I thought it was really awesome. It's an old album, kind of buried in there a little bit. And I'm old, so I like Switchfoot, and that's okay. All right, so here's what the song is called, Selling the News. Listen to these words. It's a description. Listen to these words. It's a description of culture. Tell me if this doesn't really, really track with what we see. America listens as the story is told, with the eye on the truth as the story unfolds. But the ratings determine which story was told. We're selling the news. Begging the question, mongering fears, stroking the eyes and tickling ears. The truth is seldom just as it appears. We're selling the news. I want to believe you, I want to believe, but everything is in between. The fact is fiction. The fact is fiction. Substance, oh, substance, where have you been? You've been replaced by the masters of spin who make good looking books and write history in. We're selling the news. Is that not a brilliant description of the culture we live in? Listen, well, our news outlets have learned, boy, and I, if you're in the news, like man, I just where it's still sort of good and pure is right there in the local space. You go outside of that, it gets really nasty. Our news outlets have learned that facts don't sell. Spin sells. We're sold a version of a story to elicit a certain reaction that keeps you around long enough to see the ads that pay the salaries. Political discourse, who's in for that, right? That's just a bunch of theater. It's all spin and distortion, and good luck to you if you know what anybody's really saying. I'm somewhat skeptical. Billions and billions and billions of dollars are made by tapping into our need, our collective need, to tell a carefully selected story about ourselves. You know what that's called? Social media. So many dollars are made tapping into you wanting to tell a very, uh, very selected, pre-crafted story about yourself. They're tapping into our desire to twist and distort. I love this. What, what, what do you think is one of the most popular forms of media today? It's video games. may not surprise you. Nothing wrong with a video game. We could get into that. I'm just, I'm not like, don't do the thing where you're like, I play video games. The pastor hates video games. I'm not saying that. Listen, listen. This is from an AARP article. What's it trying to do? I love this. I found this and it was like, this is gold. Okay, what's it trying to do? Convince you 55 and older that video games is where you need to spend your time. Here's what it says Why is this good? Why is this good? A good game, listen, lets you not only depart your reality, but create a new one. You're not restricted by your age, your height, your gender, or physical abilities. Maybe you can't sink a free throw in real life, but in a game of NBA 2K1, you can go one-on-one with Michael Jordan and beat him. You don't want to live in the world that you're in? Good news, you don't have to. You can twist and distort and make new however you want it. And we are lining up in droves for that. Even Skittles does it. I'm gonna run out of sermon time, but I'm gonna start on Skittles, okay? Even Skittles, I know, some of you are like, not Skittles, where's the, right? And I wanna say at the beginning that Skittles as a brand would argue with me on this, okay? I'm not This is kind of like conspiracy theory stuff I'm throwing at you right now, all right? You ready? Smile, it's a joke. Okay, okay. Test after test, even one conducted by our very own uh, Max Weems, have shown that if you lay all the colors of the rainbow out, you just lay them out. There's all sorts of colors. Kids, do not eat that one. that has been on the floor. All right, all of them are out here. They all look different. And I bet you have a favorite flavor. But I bet you, if I were to cover your eyes and pinch your nose, if you lost sight and smell and you started eating them, you would not be able to find your favorite flavor. Why? Because it's all a smoke screen. They're actually all the same on the inside. But Skittles has given you, they have sold you a distortion by giving you something that looks different and smells different. And so you think that it's different. It's not different. Now again, this is, Disputed, and the official line from Skittles is, you can taste the rainbow. You make your own choice, okay? But the point is, that's what we live in, man. We live in a distorted reality, and also parents, sorry, we did give your kids bags of Skittles, sorry. But do we do that individually? We love to point at culture, do we do it individually? Oh my goodness, how often do we embellish our stories? How often do we name drop so that somebody's image of us changes? How often do we tell the version of the story that makes us look the best or the least bad? Right? We like to leave out parts. Sometimes we even change the community that we live in so that we can retell a story with the spin that we want. They don't know what I am, and so I'm coming into a new community. I can tell whatever version of this story I want. And here's even the harder part. We even do this using God's name. How many times have we said, the Lord has led me to dot, dot, dot? How many times have we made our case in front of somebody where we've said, listen, I've really prayed about this, and here's what I'm gonna do. Now, does the Lord lead us to make decisions? Look at me. Yes, he does. Should we and ought we to pray all the time, as the scripture says, without ceasing and seek the counsel of the Lord as we make decisions? Yes, we should, but how often do we just use those words to convince somebody else that where we're going is the right way? I can't tell you how many conversations I had when I was college pastor with students in a relationship that would come to me and say, I feel like the Lord is leading me to break up with this person, and I wanted to go, no, he's not. The Lord doesn't just randomly haphazardly come into your life and go break up with this person. If that's the case, that's probably because the relationship isn't healthy and what you're experiencing is conviction of sin. You're making an idol out of this relationship. And so you are hearing the voice of the Lord, but it's not God coming in and going, boy, I sure don't like Jim Bob very much. You ought to break up with him. But that's what we tell Jim Bob because we don't have a spine enough to say that I've compromised my convictions. I'm not walking in what God has called me to and this needs to end. I need to step away. I need to repent. We don't have that kind of spine so we hide and twist and distort. You with me? We do it all the time. And listen, I love, you. we, we even do it sometimes by showing up in rooms like this. Where we're not here to worship. We're here to prop up some image of ourselves to our friends, to our family, to our community. Look, I'm an upstanding citizen. I go to church. And we're even in the room here. Not all the time. Sometimes, I'm just saying this is what we do. Sometimes we're even in the room like this because we're distorting and twisting what other people and what God thinks of us. And I'm right there with you. King hypocrite, I've said it before. I'll say it again, I'm king hypocrite. Every week I stand up here, every single week, and there's this fight that I go through. I want so bad, so bad, and maybe I'll get there someday, so bad to be able to stand up here and just rest in the truth that God has put on my heart and for that to just come out with no thought and for me to walk away from here and not think or care about what you think. But I ain't there yet. (laughs) And there's this fight that goes on inside of me every single week. And if I'm honest, I'm also thinking about what you think. Some of you are like, man, he's kind of loud right now. He's kind of getting into that higher pitch thing. I don't really like that, you know? I'm not a scholar. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm working my tail off, but I'm not a Bible scholar. And there's part of me that's afraid of what you might think if you ever found that out. If they ever found out what I really don't know, if they ever found out that sometimes I go to the table of contents, what would they think of me? (laughs) I just set a whole room free, okay? That's pretty awesome. You hear me? I compare myself to others, and I avoid situations where I might be exposed for who I am. The point is, we all do it. We all try to hide and manipulate and control our own Image and the actions of others based on who we think that they are. And Jesus is saying, verse 37 Enough. Enough. Enough of all this twisting and distorting. Enough. It's from evil. And the people that come into God's kingdom through Jesus, they have to live on a different plane. These are people, you and me in him, are people that don't have to hide from one another. Why? It's the same as it's been every single week. Where do we always seem to wind up in this, these sayings, these sermons? Where do we always wind up? Back at the cross, why do we not have to hide from one another? Well, look, look, look to the tree. The cross is a symbol of the fact that we are fully known. The death of Jesus, the absorption, we sang about it this morning, of the wrath of God tells us everything we need to know about whether or not God knows us. He knows us, he sees us, he sees into the broken and the crooked and the deceitful hearts of you and me. He has seen it all. And Jesus has gone to the cross for all that we are. God has not offered us salvation because of a version of ourselves that he thinks that we are. Jesus went to the cross because of the reality that he knows exactly who we are full of sin, objects of God's wrath and apart from him. He knows exactly who we are. He knows exactly what we've done. We are fully known. But the cross also tells us that we are also in being fully known, we are also fully loved. Why? Because the, the cross is the place where the Lamb of God laid down his life for your freedom. You wonder what value you have. You wonder whether or not you're loved. He knew everything about you and died anyway. You didn't fool him, and he gave himself fully to us anyway. We've got this really crummy lie floating around in our culture that tells us that freedom and happiness and life is found in just tapping into who we really are. If you could just, you know, bore down in there somewhere deep enough, you might find out who you really are. And then if you'll just, and you'll feel it, you'll know, you'll feel it, you'll connect with it. And then if you'll just express that, that's, that's where life is. And scripture says, no, 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 no. <laughs> because who you really are is not who you were intended to be. Who you really are is an object of wrath, a rebel, one who has declared God as unfit and who stepped into his place on your own. That's who you really are. And we are living in the reality of the collapse of human nature on the reality of our broken worship. That's who we really are. And it's not who you were intended to be. You weren't intended to have to live behind distortions and smoke screens. But the reality that there is a God that fully knows you and fully loves you and so has paid the price that you might be free, that's what we're looking at this morning. And that coming to him in our sin and an honest admission before God of who we are and allowing him to take that and make us new, heal us and forgive us, allows us to step into who we're created to be. We don't have to hide and distort one another because God has already known us and loved us. So I can live openly and honestly in front of you, blemishes and all. And that's the invitation. That's the invitation. The gift that he has given us is not that he's hidden the truth of who we are or ignored it. He's owned it. He's known it. He's loved us anyway and then he's given us a gift of life in return. And I, what Jesus is saying here is if you and I were to really grapple with the reality of God's love for us, Then we would stop having to hide from one another. And to come into God's kingdom in Jesus is to wrestle with the reality of how much you're really loved. That you are known and loved. And in that scenario, there is freedom. Perfect love casts out fear. Would you stand? If you're in the room this morning and you're hiding, isn't that exhausting? Always having to calculate what other people are thinking of you and how to twist and distort that and manipulate people, that's pretty exhausting. I wanna just tell you this morning that there is a God who knows everything about you. There's a God that created you and loved you. There's a God that is full of, fully and uh, acquainted with your sin, with your brokenness and your grief. And those things that you can hide from others, you have not hidden from him and he knows you. And it's that God that gave himself for you and this morning is inviting you to lay all of that down and to come to him, in relationship with him, come to the place where all that has been paid for and where you, by the grace of God, can receive new life in return. The invitation is just would you come to him? Man, some of us in this room have already done that and we're still really, really, really trying to make sure that people in this room don't think that we're not perfect Christians. As a non-perfect Christian, can I just invite you to that party? It's a really hard place to be sometimes because sometimes I have to talk to you about my blemishes. And that can be challenging. It can be hard to say to a brother or sister, man, this is what I'm struggling with and I know I'm a Christian. But I just wanna tell you, there's so much freedom in truth. There is so much freedom in being open and honest with one another, and the gospel tells us that we do not have to hide. We have been set free from hiding. And I can tell you over and over again in my life when I have gotten over the fear of hiding and I've been honest with the people around me, it has proved to be so fruitful that I have experienced healing, there's been deeper relationship, I've been encouraged, and my life has changed as a result of honesty with people like you. Many of you in this room have sat in rooms with me where I've had to talk to you about who I really am and you have smiled and prayed with me and I have grown as a result. Thank you. Isn't that what this place ought to be like? I just wanna invite you this morning to honesty. If you need to be honest with God about some things this morning, you just need to be up here and do that, great. If you need to go to a brother or sister and be honest with them, great. Whatever that looks like, I wanna just leave that to you to deal with. Holy Spirit, we pray as we do every week that you would lead and guide us. We don't wanna manage our own lives. We wanna surrender to you. We want you to heal us and to set us free. We want you to speak to us about what we need to do, about the things that we need to surrender. Pray that that truth will be evident this morning and that we will come to you for grace and peace and forgiveness in Jesus' name.